0: Steve Merton's here. What's up, buddy? Good to see you. Julie's here, hanging out with Steve. You guys welcome. If you are just settling in, it would be helpful for you to get one of these, a document that says 1 Thessalonians at the top. If you don't have one, then uh, Dan will run around and give you one, all right? So look for Dan. Just wave at him and he'll get you. There you go, Bubba. Thanks, sir. All right. Excellent. So what this is... Uh, We are doing, uh, we're about a little better than halfway through a series doing, for the most part, one-week summaries of every book in the New Testament. A couple books get two weeks because they're too big and too wonderful and complex, but mostly we're doing one-week shots. And a little more, am I keep passing out? Susan, what do we do? Uh, Yeah, okay, I'm going to keep going. I wonder if the. well, we'll just see, but it feels like I just keep losing syllables. Um, uh, what? First Thessalonians. Okay, so what we're doing is we're, we're doing one-week summaries of every book in the New Testament. Um, and if you've missed any of them, they're all up here. You can get, like, the, the print versions here. You can come grab those. And we're going to do uh, the audios all online. Um, if you go to the same place you get any of our Sunday school stuff, if you just go to chsroanoke.com. Susan, can, uh, Stephanie, can you maybe bring the other mic piece back down? If you don't mind, and I'll, in case it's the element that's causing this. Uh, and that, by the way, if you think, just use that. That doesn't work. That's a loud mic. It wouldn't work for our purposes here. So um, as we as we go through, my purpose and the whole thing is to help you guys just read it. My, my sense is that a lot of times we get more out of something the fifth time we read it or the tenth time we read it than the first time we read it. And so what I'm trying to do is get you to the point that for each one of these, this is like the 10th time through. You just know what you're looking for, and you're familiar with things. And of course, for many of you, it is the 10th time or the 20th time that you've read it. But we just want to make it be so that as you come into this book, you have full access to all of its treasures. And I don't know if this would surprise you, but there are, let's see, what do we got here? Thank you, thank you. Hang on, I'll pause for a second. Uh, What am I doing? doing this one. To
1: watch you
0: address, so. yeah Hey all right now we'll see if this now we'll know if this is the element or something else okay so there's about 250 pages in the New Testament roughly if you read 10 pages a day you'd be done in 25 days if you read you know or, or if you read five pages a day, it would take you 50 days, right? If you just do the math on this. And there's enough time between now and January 31st, or or December 31st, for you to read the entire New Testament. You could totally do that. Gina, can you give me a piece of tape? Do you know where the tape is? This is such a disorganized mess right now. Or actually, you know what? This one, this will work. This will work. Gina, never mind. This one will be okay. This will probably still have some stick on it. Okay. Um, so there's enough time for you to read the entire New Testament by the end of the year. You could join us. If you've, if you, maybe you've been keeping up and reading each book the week that we talk about it, and you're like already you know better than halfway done. That's great. But if not, you could just bang this thing out and just before the end of this year, have one more layer of running through the New Testament and just have it in your brain. That's really what we're trying to encourage you to do. Today, we're going to be talking about 1 Thessalonians. And I'd love to hear, as we often do, what do you already know about 1 Thess? All right, what you got? Okay, so it is a letter to the church in Thessalonica, right? So Thessalonica is a city in Greece. It sounds Greek, doesn't it, that Paul visited. You could read about that in the book of Acts if you want to understand the context in which it was created. Very good. What else do you know about 1 Thessalonians? You got anything that sticks in your brain, major passages? John, what you got? Well, go, go louder. I can't hear you.
1: Was,
0: uh, to check on that's right yes okay very much so let's go back let's get a little bit of context for it go back to Acts go to Acts 17 and I, I, th- I think this is interesting I don't know if it is your habit to see where the books of the New Testament fit into the storyline you could think of Acts as kind of like the, hang- the, the what do you call it like the bar oh thank you Susan thank you um Acts is like the, the line that you hang all your hangers on, right? It's the bar in your closet. And then you can hang, you know, 1 Thessalonians goes here, and Romans goes there, and Galatians goes here, and you kind of see the total timeline. And so if you want to know the origin of this church, you can find that in Acts 17. It says, verse 1, when they passed through Amphipolis, is that how you say that? In Apollonia they came to Thessalonica where there was a Jewish synagogue. And as his custom was, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. Okay? Now, what ends up happening is literally what happens every single time Paul goes anywhere. What are the two things that happen every time Paul preaches the gospel somewhere in the book of Acts? Somebody gets angry. Somebody gets angry. That's right. And then what else? That's the same thing right? Somebody gets angry and somebody believes. There's a revival, there's a riot, and there's a revival. It happens right here, right? It says in verse 4, some of the Jews were persuaded and they joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and not a few prominent women. But The Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. And things go on and on and on, right? And then finally Paul gets, basically he does get run out of town in verse 10. As soon as it was night, the brothers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea, and off they go, right? And so the the, the Thessalonian church, like most of the churches, was born out of genuine belief and transformed lives in the context of an angry mob. There's a revival and there's a riot everywhere he goes. That's true in, Thessalon- in Thessalonica and it's actually going to be an important theme throughout the letter. So very good. What else? Anything else? First Thessalonians that's just like off the top of your head? Hang here with weird dangly things. Anything else? So the Bereans were not, they were like, not, they're not Thessalonica. They're not the Thessalonians. They're the next town. But they, it gets a little bit chippy in Acts because it says the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians. The Bereans were the good guys. We, like the Thessalonians were a little iffy, which is funny, what we're about to see. But the Bereans, Luke loves the Bereans because they diligently studied the scriptures to see if what Paul said was true. We want to be Berean. When somebody says something, when I say something, don't believe me. Look it up. Like do the work. That's what's going on there for sure. Sam, what did you want to say about Thessalonica or Thessalonians?
1: There's like a big passage about the second coming of Christ. Used to talk as, talk about the
0: yes, okay. We're gonna we're gonna look at that. So one of the major themes in this letter is the return of Christ. It permeates the it permeates the letter, including a passage that has broadly been understood to teach that Jesus is gonna capture away the church before he comes and before there's a, a judgment on the world. We'll look at that. I don't think that's true and that's going to be troubling to some of you, but that's okay. So, we'll get there. Here's the thing I think you, if you read through 1 Thessalonians, if you sit down and you just read it like a letter, what you're going to find is it is far and away Paul's warmest epistle, okay? If you made a continuum of all of his letters, you would you would have a sense that when you're in Galatia or you're in the letter to the Galatians, when you're in 1 Corinthians, Paul's a little snippy, okay? Paul's annoyed. He's, the Corinthians give him a lot of grief, and so there's a lot of correction. There's a lot of rebuke. There's a lot of like, really? Like, what are you thinking, right? With the Galatians, he's hot. And the letter comes out. As soon as the letter opens, there's none of the Paul and Apostle of Christ. He says, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turned to a different gospel, which is no gospel at all. He's really, he's pretty upset in Corinthians. He's pretty upset in Galatians. In 1 Thessalonians, it is love, 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 love. He adores the Thessalonians. And when you read through the letter, it's just absolutely permeated with warmth and kindness. He misses them. They're not costly to him. He just loves and enjoys and misses these people, okay? So probably the centerpiece of that is where the passage I have here, 2-8. 1 Thess 2-8 is one of my favorite passages in the Bible. It says, we loved, just listen to the love sandwich here. We loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well, because you had become so dear to us. We loved you so much, you were so dear to us, that in the middle here, we wanted there to be this intersection of the gospel message and our lives. I want to be with you. I want to, I want to live out the gospel in front of you. I want to articulate the glories of Christ, I want to just do life with you. And the reason these two things come together with such power is because we love you. You are dear to us. It is an incredibly warm letter. And what he's talking about through the letter, it was this visit. He comes to Thessalonica as he's traveling around doing his missionary journeys and he meets this group of people and he just falls in love with them. And as he goes through the letter, you're going to see he's going to kind of recount their history. It's, 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 I don't know if I'd say, I don't know if it's his most personal letter, I feel like 2 Corinthians might be Paul's most personal letter. It's certainly his most emotional and poetic letter. But 1 Thessalonians is his most biographical letter. He's talking about, do you remember when we were together? Do you remember when this happened and then we were here and then we had to leave? And oh man, it felt like we were dying. We were torn away from you. There's all of this reflection on the time that they spent together the time that they've been apart, how painful their separation has been, and then the glee, he's just rejoicing when he gets a good report about how they're doing. So you, you could not read through 1 Thessalonians and not see, man, he really likes these guys. It just has a very distinctive tone, right? And what's so sweet about that, I think what's so beautiful about that, is it's not merely a letter from Paul to the Thessalonians, but it's also a letter from God to you. And I think we have every right to ride into that warmth and love and kindness that permeates the letter. Here, here's some examples of it, right? If you look at this, uh, this passage here under Paul Adores the Thessalonians, just go to the bottom of that left column. He says, But brothers, when we were torn away from you for a short time, in person, not in thought, out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you. For we wanted to come to you. Certainly I, Paul, did again and again, but Satan stopped us. And then here's this great line. I think about this line all the time. For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. Think of, the, think of that image, right? Someday when Jesus comes back, What Paul wants to, Paul is saying when Jesus comes back and there's this infinite joy to be in his presence, the thing, the thing that I'll be so excited to talk to Jesus about, the thing I'm going to say, hey, look at what I, you know how like when you're a little kid and you, you know, you make some crayon drawing, you know, and then you show it to your parents and you're proud of what you did because this was your art. Paul's saying, you are my art. You are, when Jesus comes, like what would bring me greater joy than to say, Jesus, come see my friends, the Thessalonians with whom I've walked and in whom I've, whom I've instructed and taught and helped to come to know you. He's like, you are my you're my favorite. He loves them. He goes on, and he describes this idea that they have been separated in three one in the top next column. He says, when we could stand it no longer, what they couldn't stand was their anxiety and their fear, their dread that the Thessalonians may have crashed. What's going on here is he's with them, he plants a church, then it's time to leave and go on to the next town to do it. But then he catches news that persecution has gotten really hard in Thessalonica. And he's like, oh, man, we led them to Christ. We grounded them in the faith, and then we took off. And then, like, bad things started to happen. Or ba- really, bad things continued to happen. And I don't know if they're going to stay faithful. Like, I really don't know. Like, are they strong enough? Because when persecution comes, people tend to bail and we've been hearing reports that things are not great in Thessalonica. And we're like, oh man, I hope they have not crashed. I hope that they are still walking with Jesus. I hope that they are hidden in him. And then he sends Timothy off and he gets this report. And his report on the report is this, three one: When we could stand it no longer, when we couldn't stand our worry about your well-being... We thought it best to be left by ourselves in Athens. He sends Timothy away and he says, for this reason, I mean, I could stand it no longer. I sent to find out about your faith. I was afraid that in some way the tempter might have tempted you and our efforts might have been useless. But Timothy has just now come to us from you and has brought us good news about your faith and love. He's told us that you always have pleasant memories of us and that you long to see us just as we also long to see you. Therefore, brothers, in all our distress and persecution, we were encouraged about you. Because of your faith. For now, we really live since you're standing firm in the Lord. How can we thank God enough for you in return for all of the joy we have in the presence of our God because of you night and day? We pray most earnestly that we may see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. You get it? He, he loves these guys. I'm not making this up. Like this is, this is Paul's warmest letter. I can't think of another letter that has as much personal investment as the letter, the first letter to the Thessalonians, right? So when you read it, just follow the tone. Watch what, watch what he's doing there. It's in that context that he's also going to use this thing that we just put at the bottom of all these family metaphors. He says we were gentle among you like a mother, we dealt with you as a father deals with his children, and then he calls them brothers. It's just the whole thing is just soaked in familial language. Cool. That's the tone. Any interaction with that? Or Are you good with all that? Loves them. It's a happy letter. Hang, hang out on that book. But if you want to know the topic, the topic overwhelmingly, the dominant theme in this letter is the return of Christ. If you look in your own Bible, I, I listed them here, but if you look in your own Bible, what you'll find is that every chap. the reason the chapter divisions are where they are, you guys know that, you know that chapter divisions are not original? Paul did not be like chapter two, right? He just wrote a letter, okay? And then like You know, 500 years later, somebody went through and said, let's divide it here and let's divide it here, which is just useful for us. Those chapter divisions are based on the the fact that he's constantly referring back to the return of Christ. I've listed them all. This is the kind of thing that you might just transfer into your Bible. If you go to the very end of chapter 1 and recounting his time with them, he says, they tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Chapter 1 ends with an allusion to the return of Christ, as does chapter 2, the part we already read, for what is our hope or joy, the crown on which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. Same thing in chapter 3, may he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. Chapter 4, after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with Him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. And at the very end of the book in chapter 5, may God Himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is the pervasive theme of the book. The whole thing is all about it. Now, chapter 4 is really about it. We'll look at that in a second. But that's, that's the nature of 1 Thessalonians. Okay? So it's a letter of incredible warmth and love and affection for people that he delights in. And he just talks incessantly about Jesus coming back. Good enough? Here's what I want you to consider, though, about this idea that this letter is about the return of Christ. I think what Paul is modeling... It's not that this particular letter is uniquely about the return of Christ, but rather that all of life is about the return of Christ. That whatever he's talking about, and he talks about many things that are not ostensibly, overtly the return of Christ, it's like all roads lead back to this. We live our lives in anticipation of the day that he's coming back. So whatever else Paul is talking about, it's like, you know what that reminds me of? Jesus is coming back. And you know, as we think about how we live our lives and what we need to do, we should do it in light of the fact that Jesus is coming back. And when I think about you and how much I love you, I just think about how amazing is it gonna be that we're gonna be friends forever when Jesus comes back. Because everything all converges back to this singular concept that he is coming back. It's a major predominant theme, not just to the letter and not just to Paul's life, but to our lives as well. Dig it? Dan? What is this word,
1: perusia?
0: Oh, that just means the second coming, the, re- the return of Christ. Yeah. Sorry, am I, being, am I being too fancy about it? Yeah, that is, that is the, the, the second coming of Christ. His return is the perusia. Okay. Now, you ready? Now, I'm going to just mess with your heads a little bit. Some of you may have heard me talk about this or may have heard others talk about this. But there is a doctrine known as the rapture. Um, and that is a particular idea that kind of plays out like this. That sometime, that Jesus is coming back. He's come once, and he's going to come again. But between his first coming and his second coming, there's his almost coming, okay? There's this other thing that's going to happen, where Jesus comes back, but he doesn't come all the way. He comes most of the way. And what he's doing when he comes most of the way is gathering his church away. It's called the rapture. Rapture is a Latin word that means caught up. It's based on this passage here in First Thessalonians 4. That what Jesus is going to do, he's going to come kind of like to the atmosphere. He's not going to land. He's going to be in the air, and he's going to gather away his church, and then his church should be gone, depending on how people look at it. Either he comes and he gathers us away for a very short time, or for three and a half years, or for seven years. But whatever it is, he picks up the church. He gathers away his people, so he can kind of like bring a lot of judgment and destruction on the earth. And then, after all of that, then he comes back for real. Like, then the second coming really happens. So there's the first coming that already happened. There's the second coming that's at the end. But right before the second coming, three and a half years or seven years, most commonly you'll hear it framed out as seven years, he comes most of the way, gathers us off, and there's this thing. The rapture is like we're all sitting here all minding our own business, and then we shoop, 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 shoop. And everybody kind of disappears. And usually, apparently, they leave their clothes behind the way it tends to get figured, which is weird. We all get raptured naked, apparently. And um, one of my friends in college had a bumper sticker that said, warning, in case of rapture, this car will be unmanned, right? Do you know this? Okay, and that whole framework is largely, um, one, of the, one of the grounding passages for that is First Thessalonians, okay? Now, real quick, how many of you have... What I, what I just explained, you're like, yeah, 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 I've heard that. I read Left Behind. I'm familiar with this whole storyline. Familiar? Yes, many of you? Okay. I don't think any of it's true, okay? And I have said that, and, and I say that as, a, as offensively as possible, okay, uh, because it's not true. And, but I have said that to plenty of people who, prior to saying that, thought I was a Christian and then come to find out that I'm not a Christian, I have taught on this to people that I know that I am like telling you that your baby is ugly, okay? I hear all that. Uh, She's super cute, though. Everything's fine. All right? Everything's good. Um, But I, I do want to suggest to you that I think that is an erroneous understanding. And if you read the passage that we look at, I will completely, completely grant that it sounds like you're right and I'm wrong. But give me like 10 minutes, okay? So just stay with me on this. So here's the, here's the passage. Go to 1 Thess. Did I actually list it? Yeah, I'll open my level. Go to 1 Thess chapter 4. Here's the passage. And first we'll see what it says, and then I'm going to try to help you see what it doesn't say. Okay? It starts off, in, well, our passage will start in verse 13. Okay? The context is that the Thessalonians are all freaked out. They know that Jesus is coming back and he's going to gather his people away. Right? Or more aptly, they know that Jesus is going to come back and is going to establish his kingdom on earth. That's the better answer, okay? So they know that Jesus is going to come, and they're waiting for Jesus to come. But then what starts to happen, much to everybody's shock, is people start dying. And whereas you and I have lived our whole lives probably with the assumption that you're going to die before Jesus comes back, they were living their lives with the assumption that Jesus was going to come back before they die. But then they start dying and so the fear and the question in their mind is, well, what about them? Like, I know when Jesus comes back, if we're here, then that's going to be awesome. But if, if, you, if you pre-decease the return of Christ, are you, what do you, I mean, you just lose? What, what happens, okay? And so Paul is writing to address that. So he says, brothers, verse 13, we don't want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep. Do you remember that language? We talked about this a couple months ago. They never call Christians dead. They always fall asleep. That's dead is what that means, okay? But they're falling asleep. We want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep, or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died, rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus when He comes, those who have fallen asleep in Him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of Lord, coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. What he's saying is don't worry about all your dead Christian friends. Everything's going to be fine for them too. We're not going to leave them. We're not going to precede them. We're not going to leave them behind. Okay? Verse 16. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command and with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up. There it is. The Latin Vulgate, the Latin translation of the New Testament, right there says the word rapture. It's the Latin for caught up. Here it is. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be raptured together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. You with me? Okay. That passage right there, if you read that, you're like, what on earth could Tim possibly say to undercut what God's word said, I'm gonna go Bible over Tim. And that's a good idea, all right? Always go Bible over Tim. But when you go Bible over Tim, and make sure you're going Bible, not what you think the Bible says, but what it actually says, okay? The most important thing to notice is not just what it does say, but what it doesn't say. Jesus, what Paul is saying is, okay, so here's us, okay? This is like church, steeple, here's the people, right? Here's the people. And Jesus is gonna come let me just read it again. The Lord himself, verse 16, will come down from heaven with a loud command and the voice of the archangel, the trumpet call of God. Right? He, he's here in the air. And after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And then the narrative stops. Okay? And at that moment, here's what I want you to recognize. Once the Lord comes and once his people greet him, somebody is going to do a U-turn. Agreed? Either Jesus is going to do a U-turn and take us away with him and complete what many people think happens in the rapture, or the people are going to do a U-turn and escort Jesus in. And this passage doesn't make clear which it is. You with me? So if I had, a, if I had planned this better, we'd have a PowerPoint, and they'd be like, Jesus up here and the people down here, and then we meet in the air, and then the screen goes black. Do we return with him? Or does he return with us? At the very least, what you have to say is that the passage is ambiguous on that point. It doesn't settle. It just, the story ends and everybody's floating in the air. And nobody thinks we're going to spend the rest of the time in the air, okay? Either Jesus takes us away to go someplace else, or we escort him in. At the very least, it's ambiguous. But I would suggest to you it's not ambiguous, that the question is actually resolved in the text in ways that many people just haven't noticed. And here's the reason. If you go here, it says, After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. That word meet is apentesis. And what I'm going to do, I'm just going to touch that word. My Bible does all kinds of cool things that yours might not do. I'm going to touch it. And then what I do, I'm going to find that there are Three times in the New Testament that that Greek word is used. They are Matthew 25, Acts 28, and First Thess 14, First 4:17. 4, First Thess, we know. I want you to show you what happens the other two times that word is used. It's Matthew 25, verse six. If you go to Matthew 25:6, listen to this story. We'll start in verse one. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five were wise. And the foolish ones took their lamps, but didn't take any oil with them. The wise, however, took oil and jars along with their lamps. And the bridegroom was a long time in coming. And they all became drowsy and fell asleep. And at midnight, the cry rang out, Here's the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Let's go apenthesis him. And the virgins woke up, and they trimmed their lamps. And the fools, foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out." No, they replied, there may not be enough for both us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil, buy some from, your, from yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived, and the virgins who were ready went with him into the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. And later the others came and said, Sir, sir, open the door for us. And he said, I tell you the truth, I don't know you. And Jesus says, Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. What those virgins were supposed to do, was they were supposed to leave And meet the bridegroom and then do a U turn and escort him in. But they weren't able to do it. They left, they went outside to meet him, not to go away with him, but to do the U turn themselves and to come back in. Does this make sense? That's one. The other time that is used is actually Acts 28. Acts 28, it's Paul himself. In Acts 28, Paul, we'll, we'll pick it up in verse 11. Paul is coming in um, to be with the, with the believers. And in 28, 11, after three months, we put out to sea in a ship that had wintered on the island. It was an Alexandrian ship. And the figurehead of the twin gods, Castor and Pollux. And we put in at Syracuse and stayed there three days. From there, we set sail and arrived in some other place. We moved on. He's just traveling through, but look at it. Verse 14, and there we found some brothers who invited us to spend a week with them. And so we came to Rome. The brothers there had heard that we were coming and they traveled as far as the forum of Apius and the three taverns to meet us, to apentesis us. And at the sight of these men, Paul thanked God and was encouraged. And then all of them together in verse 16 got to Rome and Paul was allowed to live by himself with a soldier to guard him. The two other times that that word is used, it's someone someone important is coming in and then somebody else goes out to meet him and escort him in. They go out to meet him and to escort him in. And I think that that's exactly what's going on in 1st Thessalonians, that we will be caught up in the Lord to meet the air, meet him in the air, and then we will do a U-turn and we will escort him in. This is not the supposed 1.5 coming of Christ. This is the, this is it. There's only two. There's the first coming and there's the second coming. And 1st Thessalonians 4 is about the second coming. It's not about a pre-coming rapture away. It is about the coming when we go to meet him and to escort him in. Make sense? Now, for some of you that were raised on Tim LaHaye books, I know that that's a big fight, and that's okay. And you can think on this, and you can process it, and you can come down wherever you want on this. Um, or you can go over to Matthew 24 <laughs> and misunderstand that one too. Um or we can process through it, but I'm telling, and I know I'm being, again, I'm I'm being somewhat chippy on purpose, but you guys, I just think it's, I think it's a pretty significant misunderstanding, and the people that disagree with me on this tend to disagree vehemently about this, and that's okay. We can still be friends. Even if I'm completely wrong about everything, I hope that you will still be my friend, but I hope that you might also consider the possibility that Tim LaHaye is wrong, and that that whole framing is just not what the Scriptures actually teach, that he is coming back, and what we look forward to Here's the, here's the philosophical implication of this. The sweetness of the gospel is not escape. The rapture, the rapture is framed in kind of a premillennial, pre trib, dispensationalist theology. And if you don't know what those words mean, it doesn't really matter. Okay? And that whole framing, it's, a, it's an escapism. I want to go away. That is not the gospel. We are not escaping this, we're restoring this. We are going to be right here. This, thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We are not looking forward to the great escape. We are looking forward to His coming, the blessed appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who came to give Himself for us, to redeem for Himself a people that are His very own, eager to do it. That's what we're looking for, His coming, His restoration of all things, not our escaping away while all the bad stuff goes down. Okay? I think it's a radically different... It's not just what does the Greek word mean. It's what are we longing for. And what we long for is his coming to restore this place, not the catching away to some other place. Okay? So, if you want to debate on that, I'll be happy to do that. But I wanted to lay that, make that case as quickly as I could. And I feel like there was one hand. Did I miss see that? Okay, Robin. Yep. okay, so that's Matthew 24. So Matt, So, Robin says, what about that passage that says that one is in the field, one is taken, and one is grinding? Okay, that's Matthew 24. We can do that quickly. This would be the number two position for teaching on the rapture. Um, but here's the thing. I'll just show you two. Do we have time? Mm, okay, we'll do this really quick. Go to Matthew 24. And Matthew 24 is what's called the Olivet Discourse. It's Jesus on the Mount of Olives. It's probably, let's see, do I agree with this? It might be, it's certainly the top three, but it's probably the number one teaching from Jesus' lips on his return, this whole Olivet Discourse. And in it, just notice this, let's see. Go down to verse 36, Matthew 24, 36. No one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Now hear this, Okay. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. for in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen to them until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Now, forget everything I said for a second. Okay, and just read verse 40 and 41. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill, One will be taken and the other left. Overwhelmingly, when that gets taught by people that are, that are advocating for the rapture, they're just saying, so, to, you know, these two are, well, they're probably both going to get raptured. Okay, so, you know, a Christian and a non-Christian are working in the field. And then, which one gets taken, you guys? Okay, so here's the question. You may not have even noticed the ambiguity. When it says one will be taken and the other left, two women are grinding, one is taken and the other left, in popular imagination, to be taken is to be taken in rescue, is to be taken in the rapture, that suddenly somebody's grinding all by themselves because Gary just got sucked away, and there's this idea that, like, to be taken is rescue, okay? But look at the passage. What he says... Just prior to the part I told you to forget, look at verse 38. In the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and, be, and giving in marriage up to the day that Noah entered the ark. Okay? So we're talking about Noah's ark. That's great. If you go one verse earlier than that, in verse 37, he says, As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Which is to say, there's something about Noah's flood that is indicative Of the return of Christ. There was something about the way things played out in Noah's day that will play out in this new day. Okay? And that thing that is going to be like, oh, that's so much like that, is that when folks are just living their lives and just doing stuff, they're eating, drinking, marrying, they're grinding grain, okay? There they are. But look what happens in verse 39. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. This is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. So in the days of Noah, when the flood comes, is it a good thing or a bad thing to be taken away? It's bad. The image that Jesus is employing in Matthew 24 is being taken in judgment, not taken in rescue. And so when we, again, it's just like in 1 Thessalonians, there's an ambiguity that you may not have noticed right? We meet him in the air, and then we just keep going. Well, it doesn't say that. It says we meet him in the air, but maybe we do the U-turn and not him. In the same way, in in Matthew 24, there's an ambiguity. Who's being taken? Is you taken in rescue, or are you taken in judgment? Well, I don't know. How can we possibly know? Well, maybe because of the previous verse, which talks about being taken in judgment, and Jesus' explicit statement that what happened in Noah's day is going to happen again. And just like they were taken in judgment, some will be taken by surprise, taken in judgment by surprise. Does this make sense? I just don't think it's that. I don't think it's, the, the popular imagination of this absolutely inverts the meaning. And I don't think that what I'm telling you is at all special pleading. It's just straight, normal, you know, exegesis. The, the parallel that Jesus is saying is there is a surprise judgment in a flood and there will be a surprise judgment when he comes. Cool? Okay, Chris first.
1: I think I think that's... I think you're right. I, I agree with you. So we, I mean, we can still be friends. Um, Thank you. I, uh, uh, I think that's
0: Could we be friends if we disagreed? Of course. Okay, good.
1: But uh, um, it's easier now. Um,
0: I think it's highlighted
1: with the uh, trumpet sounding of God. Or if we yeah. It, the trumpet, definitely in the Old Testament and the New Testament, it's always, it's the shofar that the Jews would do to, which is like the billboard that we would use nowadays except for the time when they, it's even better because you can hear it even farther than you can see a billboard. You're exactly right. It just right. means Yeshua, uh, Yahweh, people are coming, the Jews are coming. And it's yep. it used endlessly in the Old Testament to mean either um, attack and war, it's how the Jericho walls fell down, but it's never explicitly like, like you were kind of saying with the rapture of being just snatched up out of with your clothes. Yes. And just immediately always slow it's always a foretelling of what's going to happen come repent and then or or else basically. yes um, and so in this part part is talking about the sound of the trumpet of god so the greater so far not just one blown by human lips but one blown by um archangels of the lord or whatever that would look like and then i, I think that's pointing to the fact that it's
0: Yes. Okay, but i got to stop because there's way too much for people in the back to, to hear. It's just too much for me to recap. Chris, what Chris is pointing out is that in 1 Thessalonians 4, the same thing is happening in Matthew. 1 Corinthians 1 is another place that when Christ returns, there's this trumpet call. There's all these tags of what happens when he comes. And 1 Thessalonians 4 contains all of the tags of 1 Corinthians 15. And again, it's not about the pre coming. It's about the coming, right? So if, if you look at First Thess, if you, if you go through, you look at First Thess 4, or you look at First Corinthians 15, here's First Corinthians 15. I will tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will all be changed. And he's just, he's using this as a description of Again, the return of Christ. 1 Thessalonians 4 is not about the pre-return. It's about the return when he comes all the way and we are gathered to escort him in. Okay? Now, we're long on time, so let me just say this really quickly. Um, First of all, if you're like, you are troubling to me, that's no problem. I don't mind troubling you at all. Um, And you want to talk to me about it, let's talk about it. You can email me and we can process through why I'm screwing with your world on this, and that's fine. I'll be happy to do that. But notice this also. First Thessalonians has major application points. I just listed them out so you can know. He loves them with so much warmth. He's very concerned about the return of Christ and all things. But there's certain things he's going to talk about. Being ready for his return, that's a major theme. Sexual purity, probably one of the most important passages on sexual purity is also in that same chapter, 1 Thess 4. Teasing out the logic of that would be worth taking a few minutes. Um, the love for the church... That not only that he loves them, but that they ought to love one another, permeates the letter. And then finally, this will matter a little bit more next week. But diligence—he's going to say in four eleven, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, to work with your hands, just as we told you, so your daily life may win the respect of outsiders, and you will not be dependent on anyone. Next week we're going to look at Second Thessalonians. So if you want to read First Thess and then read Second Thess this week, feel free. Second Thess has three themes. We'll talk about them next week, but they are all rooted in First Thessalonians, which is to say, the things going on in First Thess that Paul writes to correct or to bring encouragement or correction to. Lo and behold, he's got to write him another letter because it's still going on. Right? Are you familiar with this phenomenon? Has anybody ever put their finger on an issue in your life, and then like a year later, it's like you know, still the same? Right? That's where you're going to see that. So he loves them. He's warm to them. He corrects them. But they need, like a, they need a little touch-up work in second Thess. And, you know, be of good cheer because so do we, right? So you can watch, read, reading them as a set is interesting to see what, 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 gets, what, what is he able to drop, but what does he have to continue to visit? They're still tangled up about the return of Christ. They're a lazy people. He keeps telling them, like, get a job. Let's go. Um, this, so that we'll, we'll, we'll take a look at that when we get to next week. So read them both. Be ready to go. That's all we got. Thanks.